This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. Hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, ice cream is good for you? If you grew up in any way at all during the 90s, you've probably heard of the Food Pyramid. It was, in its heyday, a visual representation on how to be a nutritious person. It has the smallest section at the top, those were your sweets and treats. And then moving down were sections that included proteins, fruits, and veggies. And at the very bottom was a big section for grains. Now, we all know today that this pyramid is patently false. But somewhere at the top, in the sweets and sugar section, you could see ice cream. It's sweet, it's fatty, it's unhealthy, right? Well, maybe not so much. It turns out that decades-old research exists suggesting that not only is ice cream not that bad for you, it may actually be kind of good for you. In this episode, we talk about why you've never heard about this, how learning styles are almost entirely made up, and how conventional wisdom and sampling bias can twist what we know to be true. And welcome to episode 100 of Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making. No, it's not episode 100. And that is coming, it's though. It's episode 100. It is coming. It's episode 85. Uh, we're talking about um, conventional wisdom and, I guess, uh, lies and things today. So I, I thought that maybe I'd just come out of the gates hot and just see if you were paying attention. And I think that you kind of were, and then you thought, is this a bit that he didn't tell me about? What's going on? Oh, wait, he's just a moron. If I shut up, I'll figure it out. Yeah, shout out to my boy, Blake. Very sequential guy. Very, very straightforward Literally. kind of person. You know what you're going to get sure. with a guy like Blake. And uh, I can only apologize if you thought we were going out of order. We're not. Don't we're worry. Not. You haven't missed 15 <laughs> quality episodes. Although, people well, might have 100 on the brain because of a legendary, legendary mm, celebrity yeah. who passed since the last time we... Recorded, and I'm not talking about Jimmy Buffett. No, yes, who also he, passed. He also passed. Um, Bob Barker, who and everyone on the internet made the same joke at the same time, who died at the age of 99, just under 100 dollars. Um, which is a joke. It's the same joke that happened when uh, was it Billy Mays died, and he was the fourth celebrity death. He threw an extra one in, completely free. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that was a. <laughs> that was a really good. Well, Steve no. Harwell also the lead singer of Smash Mouth, but yeah. But, I always want to say Willie Mays. Billy Mays here. <laughs> Roxy clean. You know, there was, have, a, there was a, that, wasn't there was a, a Mandela effect? Or was it just a Mandela effect or was it like a regular myth that he died because of a tragic turbulence-related accident? Yeah. I, he was sitting on an airplane and he didn't have his seatbelt fastened. And they I, hit unexpected turbulence and he bounced up into the air and hit his head on the ceiling of the plane and later died from the injuries. I, I feel like I remember hearing that as a kid, and people think that's true, and I don't think it is. It's really interesting, because he died of, according to a quick Google search, right, if the right Billy Mays is correct, autopsy says he died of heart disease. Heart so, disease. Heart, uh, yeah, and so it sounds a little bit different than... <laughs> hitting your head on an airplane. Hitting, <laughs> yeah, conking your noggin on an airplane. I, th I think that's a made-up thing. I, I, I don't know where that started. Oh. I don't know who... 
I do think we should do Mandela true. effects. I think we should do them because I think it's a really some of them are so true. Like the the Dragon Ball Z Brazil one is one of the craziest things that I've ever heard Wait, in my entire what? life. Uh, we've talked about that before th- this before on the show. I know that you don't remember, so I'll remind you. In Brazil on September 11th, there are like tens of thousands of people around our age, and we're in our 30s, that very vividly remember watching Dragon Ball Z when September 11th happened, and people have gone back and be like, nope, absolutely factually incorrect. Like, they've looked into like it wasn't, what, it wasn't playing. The yeah. show didn't exist? No, it did, but it wasn't playing. Like, it was for sure, and people have looked into the network, like, nobody was playing Dragon Ball Z. That is bizarre. Yes, yeah, so for, for those of you who don't know what the Mandela effect is, it's this collective kind of misplaced memory where mm-hmm. everybody swears a thing happened and that thing hadn't really happened. Like, And I think it's named after the Mandela effect because years ago, a lot of people, I mean, just people reported all over the place, like they swear, yeah, Nelson Mandela died. Yeah. And, that's, and he had not died. He had not he died. Was, he was alive at the time. And then he became president of South Africa, so he super duper didn't die. Um, yeah, everyone thought he'd like died in prison. Yeah, he did, which he, he didn't. didn't. Which was, that's what we're talking about today, kind of. We're talking about something really, really fascinating. Two bits of research that have been misinterpreted or people are scared of. On one hand, it turns out that ice cream is like low-key, high-key good for you. And on the other hand, learning styles kind of don't really exist or impact how people factually actually learn stuff. But we think that ice cream is bad for you and you shouldn't eat it. And every teacher believes that kids learn best in their preferred learning style. Both of those are just patently false, just incorrect. Well, you would think. Yes. There's there's some there's some actual scientific debate about this. So the, so the ice cream thing, I think, is really the centerpiece of what we're talking about yes, today because sure. it's... It's a bit of conventional wisdom, and, and, and I would say saying ice cream is healthy is pretty low stakes. It's a pretty easy target to avoid. It's not like you know, people who are studying nutrition, they have a lot to, stu- to worry about, but it's not like, well, this thing may or may not cure all forms of cancer. Like That would be like a higher, higher risk thing. Like saying ice cream is going to make right. you fat, that's not, that doesn't have the same gravitas, I would say. So it's easier for people to, to kind of avoid talking about it. But lately... Within the last year or two, it seems like there's been a lot of reporting about how nutritional studies measuring the effects on the health of certain foods have actually shown that ice cream may be genuinely good for the human body, mm-hmm. but people just don't seem to want to talk about it, whether they're researchers or journalists or whomever else. Yeah, so there's this piece that came out in The Atlantic, and as we sit here, I have... I commandeered the, the article, and I haven't found where I saved it because I'm not going to tell you how to go you over commandeered the article. If you want to get past paywalls, occasionally, if you hit Control-P before the page loads, it'll just print the whole page. Um, but Hot you got to be for those quick. Of you who are out you got to be quick. Otherwise, it loads, and then it knows what you're trying to do, and then you have to raise You got to know those control keys. And, yeah, you got to know your control keys. I don't know exactly where it is, but it came out of this Atlantic article that is basically going through... This research, and I want to shout out The Atlantic for, um, while being incredibly annoying, they also have people that do actual reporting on science. This is a tough thing about some of these East Coast media outlets. Is some of it's really good reporting and some of it's really terrible. This was really good. Someone was going through the science and wanted to interview the research, the researchers that were involved in some of these old, and some of these ice cream studies are old, Chris. Like, they're decades old. And they're like, yeah, ice cream actually really? is, it, yeah, they, well, 
looking at the health effects of yogurt and the health effects of ice cream, what they found is that ice cream is basically yogurt, maybe a little bit better. These are some of the old studies. People that are involved in research don't want to, they don't comment on this publicly because conventional wisdom, like we're discussing with sugar slash fat, has been dairy, dairy sugar bad. And it turns out that they've known the whole time. They're like, yeah, it's not that, it's not that bad. How old are we talking? I, studies? I believe 80s. Late 80s. 80s. Like 1980s? Yeah. Not not 80 years ago. Not 80 years ago. Yeah, are, are you referring to the Atlantic article you shared with me by David Merritt Johns? Yes. Yeah, really really interesting stuff here. Yes. There's, there's a quotation from, from some of the people who do this sort of research. Uh, it's uh, Frank Hu, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. And... Uh, Frank describes this as say he says I do remember the vibe I do sort of remember the vibe being like ha 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 this ice cream thing won't go away that's pretty funny <laughs> yeah which so let's just discuss what this could possibly mean first of all our father had a uh, ice cream bowl that was the big bowl and he had about a pint a day it seemed like but he was walking like ten miles a day underground as a miner so it didn't really matter yeah, what he ate he doing, doing like real like man's man work like making big rocks into little rocks big rocks into little rocks exactly that's a good good uh, Django Unchained right there is that what that's from I think that's what that's from that is yeah when they're gonna set off get sent off to LaQuint Dickey LaQuint Dickey mining, mining company, company with the you know, Quentin Tarantino writing himself apart where he gets to say the n-word yeah which is incredible what a strange coincidence what a strange strange coincidence indeed okay so our father used to eat ice cream it was a big deal. Then more and more health data comes out, and we know that Tom Brady eats avocado ice cream. People are like, don't gratuitously snack on stuff. Ice cream is bad, okay? It's bad. But we know that yogurt is good. So when you think about it, you're like, how? This is weird. These are dairy products. This is just pasteurized stuff with some little flavors sprinkled in there. Fine. Okay, so I guess it, it kind of makes sense. Now, you pointed something out in our uh, our pregame chat that it's also entirely possible that there's some sampling bias here that people that are being studied are actually fit and therefore they don't eat that much ice cream and when they do eat ice cream they enjoy the health benefits which would also make sense all things in moderation pizza is probably super healthy for you if you don't eat it all the time and don't eat too much of it yeah that's that's certainly a possibility the the phenomenon that we're looking at that you're describing here that i brought up is called reverse causation and this is this is an important idea, I think, in game theory because it's it's what's that what's that Mark Tate, Mark Twain quotation we're mm. always it's sharing it, each other. this rose to even more prominence uh, when the Big Short came out the movie it's it's not what you don't know that hurts you it's what you know for sure that just ain't so yeah exactly it, people people don't usually get hurt as bad by failure to know information as knowing the wrong information like the Mandela effect if it wasn't like serious like silly pop culture things if it was like serious stuff that can that can really come back to bite you and reverse causation is is a common pitfall it's it's a process it's a biological clinical or social process through which a causal relationship operates in a way opposite to that which is apparent mm-hmm. and why did it sound like I'm citing a reference there it's because I'm you citing are. a dictionary of epidemiology Ah. specifically. Yeah, this comes from Oxford Reference. They're citing a Dictionary of Epidemiology by uh, Mikhail Porta. So, and, and, the, and the basic point is that what people might attribute as a cause and effect relationship may in fact be the exact opposite. So in, in the case of ice cream, this study that, uh, that this scientist named, 
Who? Scroll past the name. Who? Right? <laughs> was it who? No. Well, Frank Frank who was a research, was a researcher. Yes. Uh, but there was another one that I'm, I'm quoting out of uh, out of Deseret News here. This article from earlier this year, from July 2023, Andres Artisan Korat, who is a doctoral student at Harvard in 2018, and. Artisan Korat explains there are a few plausible biological relationships to, to some specific findings that have to do with these, like you said, in the 1980s, food frequency surveys. They asked people, what kind of health conditions do you have, like self-reported health sure. conditions, and what kind of foods do you eat the most often? And the result was that for people with diabetes, for, this is people who already have diabetes, eating a cup of ice cream a day was associated with a lower risk of heart problems. Yeah, and so people crazy. might might immediately conclude, hopefully conclude, maybe that eating ice cream is actually good for the heart. Right, like in some way, it's the ice cream that's causing the lower correlation of heart disease in these people. But in fact, it's also possible that people who already have a low risk of heart disease, or people who already have a healthy heart, or people who are otherwise healthy like to indulge in a little bit of ice cream every now and then. I mean, it, it might be the case that people who are at risk of heart failure or some other kind of medical problem are getting told by their doctor, look, you can't eat ice cream because it's not good for you. Eating that kind of dairy plus sugar is just not good for you, so don't do it. So then people who get this survey, they say, I have diabetes. I have heart risks or heart problems or heart failure, some, some other underlying condition. My doctor's told me I can't eat ice cream, so I'm going to fill out this survey and say, yeah, no, I don't eat ice cream very often at all. And the opposite might be the case. Like, well, you know, my doctor said it's fine. I can enjoy a nice little treat every now and then. Sure. So I eat ice cream. It, it, I, I remember having this conversation with people when I was in college. Somebody, some rebel in the dorm wanted to point out how good alcohol is for you and how, how healthy it is for people to socially drink because I guess he was upset with the rules. I, I don't know who it was. Somebody just posted this, like, fact sheet. It, it was like it read like a chain mail thing from the 1990s or 2000s, like, forward this on or you're going to have bad luck for 20 years. <laughs> but he posted this thing, and I remember one of, the, one of the facts that was listed on this thing was that people who drink alcohol two to three times a week have a lower rate of heart or a lower rate of liver failure than people who don't drink at all. And I remember thinking, well, you know, it's it's entirely possible that the people who made that claim or interviewing people who already were at a low risk of liver failure, who were already healthy and thought, yeah, I have the space to drink two or three times a week. Whereas if somebody who was diagnosed with liver problems, their doctor's going to tell them not to drink. Yep. And so they're going to report drinking nothing. And it could be the case that the causal relationship is, in fact, backward. The effect is what we think is the effect is actually the cause. And what's the cause is the effect. And I, I think that's a really, really interesting possibility that this ice cream study has has brought to bear. It's like, well, is ice cream good for you or are healthy people just eating more ice cream? Yeah. And so it, it, I do find it interesting because there's, there's another study. And I think that we could maybe I'll Google this while we're talking about it. I was going to save this for a, an episode down the line. The Wall Street Journal found or reported on, on research that people who work out hard, not like crazy, not like they're professional athletes, but people who work out hard only on the weekends have like often the same or better health and mental health than people who work out four to five times a week. It's really better to work out less, which is, I haven't read the, uh, the article. I, I just saw it on the internet and I'm like, okay, that's really interesting. So I look into that, which makes it, it really is. It's there's a, there's a, there's a balance to being a human being that we haven't quite understood. The second thing that's happening 
is that people are launching studies because they want marketing to be good. What's really strange is that big ice cream hasn't taken hold of this because that we have seen big this or big that take hold of this exact kind of thing in the past, Chris. I am going to take you back to the year of our Lord, 2003. Right quick. 2003. 2003. I have this queued up, and unless YouTube puts an ad in there, we're going we're gonna to watch a commercial that I actually want us to watch. Okay, here we go. Wait, oh, I can't click out. Hold on. Cholesterol, come back. Ah. Do you know where I'm going with this? No, I can't hear it. Oh. Well, they can. (laughs) Player three, I hope you're enjoying this. Chris, the commercial is an old school commercial for Honey Nut Cheerios, which may help you lower your cholesterol. It may help you lower your cholesterol, as evidenced by the heart shape drawn on the box. Exactly. They drew a heart on the box because it could help you lower cholesterol. Chris, does Honey Nut Cheerios lower your cholesterol? I'm going to go ahead and say yeah. Uh, No, it does not. It could. Well, The theory behind Cheerios being able to lower your cholesterol stems from a General Mills-founded study. That's right, the cereal founded the study in 1998 on whether whole grain oat ready-to-eat cereals, could influence cholesterol. This is what they found. The study found that those ate who ate whole oat cereal experienced reduced total cholesterol levels by 3.8% and reduced LDL cholesterol levels by 4.2%. So people who ate those cereals had lower cholesterol than people who didn't eat them. So people who were eating the boring, healthy cereals to start, they had lower cholesterol than people that were eating Lucky Charms, Chris. And I think that we found out that... uh, the sugar spray Cheerios are probably better for you than Lucky Charms. I think they are. I think the conclusion is to go out and buy a lot of Honey Nut Cheerios. Yes, and they did. They, and, and that's, oh. <laughs> yes, people bought the hell. They bought that shit. Cheerios. They bought that line. They did. They bought it. it it's. I, I think this also highlights the extreme complexity of doing any kind of nutritional health-based studies. It's it's incredibly hard to demonstrate whether <laughs> something is or is not healthy. I mean, there's th- there's kind of conventional wisdom that people are aware of, and we'll talk about that in, in yes. a little bit. But there, there's like the kind of basic dietary facts. Even, even that has changed during our lifetimes. I mean, remember the episode where we talked about the, the half-life of knowledge? Yep, 100%. There's a, there's a certain period of time during which the the number of facts that you know to be true is going to be about half true by the time by by, by the end of the time period it, it, facts are constantly changing that's because we do more exploration we do more scientific study we do more observation we have more time to observe and nutrition is is a classic case of that nick you remember what the food pyramid looked like when we were school, oh right? yeah sugar at the top of grain on the bottom interesting yeah, so the idea is that if you want to understand nutrition, you draw a pyramid and you fill in small bricks on that pyramid to make it to the top. And the, the big bricks on the bottom, that the wide base, that's what you should be eating the most of. Mm-hmm, yeah. And as you go up, each different type of food fits in a different brick and you should eat the size, the amount of food, relatively speaking, of that brick compared to the other bricks. And like you said, sugar's at the very top because you should eat the least of that generally. And whole grains are at the bottom. That's your cereals, your wheats, your breads, all that good stuff. Then, of course, it's fruits and vegetables just above that, and then meat and dairy. It turns out that was largely just made up. <laughs> just They just made the, it up. 
They just made it up. The food pyramid changed, like nutritional guidelines changed. I think when we were in high school, and I'm, tr- I'm trying to remember when it was that they actually made the adjustment. Uh, but the, but the, original, the original food pyramid actually has its origin in 1972. Sweden's National Board of Health and Welfare developed this concept of like basic food groups. And the USDA adopted that later on in 1992. Then in 2005, they changed to My Pyramid, and that was later replaced by My Plate in 2011. So they yeah. made the, the shape into a circle. And, and the, the, the way that they changed the, the original food pyramid to My Pyramid was that they made it into uh, strips that went vertically. So from, from the apex of the pyramid, they would draw these like smaller, thin triangles into like slices. Mm. And it was much less intuitive, and it was obvious that they they made that design choice because people are like, oh, the food pyramid, the food pyramid. It's such a staple of trying to understand nutritional health. And it turns out that's just not really the case. And, and you know, now I think it's much more common for people to refer to, like, macros. Instead of referring to food groups, you refer to, like, carbs, you refer yeah, to right. fats, you refer to proteins. But even that's not, like, the whole picture. That doesn't That doesn't capture everything that goes into nutritional considerations. That's just like one class of kind of, I don't even know if it's like a nutrient is the right word. It's, it's a class of like calorie containing items that people can kind of more intuitively understand. Right. And you know, there, there, I think we know much more now than we did in 1992 when we adopted the original food pyramid. Oh, Hey, that's good. But well, I mean, one would think <laughs> allegedly, but it, it, it does go to sh- go to show. I think that conventional wisdom is valuable a lot of times, but sometimes it, it, it can really lead people astray. And, you know, this whole ice cream thing, I think, puts a fine point on it because it shows that, well, you know, this thing at the very top of the food pyramid, it's got the sugar and it's got the dairy. It may not even be, you know, they're, they're, people have that so cemented in their minds that it may not even be the case that they're looking at an unhealthy food or they're consuming an unhealthy food. It could just be that these things that they, like, have traditionally associated with being unhealthy or desserts or little treats or whatever, that might actually be good for you in a way that we just don't understand. Right. And I think what's okay. So what's kind of interesting to me is that this, this food pyramid thing in South Park, of course made fun of it in their episode where they just turned the pyramid upside down. Oh, the pyramid was upside down the whole time. It's the Illuminati. Um, <laughs> which like, like a, like Dan Brown is suddenly in charge of nutritional. Guidance. Correct. Yeah. And, uh, Aunt Jemima was the person that she's the one that unlocks the next, uh, sphere of life but shout out to Aunt Jemima shout out to Aunt Jemima so what I I find really interesting is that and this is just me being a conspiracy theorist of all of the the industries that um, are probably safe in America and all over the world I would say food industries are probably good human beings need three things scientifically to survive one food and water two shelter and three clothing because we our skin we just our skin is useless we don't we absorb vitamin d but not much else we can't survive in the elements we need food so people like cheerios and general mills are going to run with studies that show that something is good and then they're going to kind of hint at something else being bad and these kind of advertising regulatory bodies aren't exactly crushing it. But what's really fascinating to me is that a company like Ben and Jerry's or anyone at all hasn't been like, hey, guess what? This isn't that bad for you. Where's the marketing on that? That's what the mo- the weirdest part about this conventional wisdom situation is ice cream being bad for you. If that's what we're going to say is conventional wisdom is that there are people who can be like, hey, it's not really that bad and you can have some in moderation and it's not the same thing as just eating, you know, no disrespect, gummy bears 
which are probably a little bit worse for you than actual ice cream. So where where the hell is the marketing money on this? That's the weirdest part about this. But let's talk about conventional wisdom. Oh, tell me. Hold on. I will tell you where the marketing is on this. Oh, okay. I think you, I fear you may have missed the boat on a major cultural thing. Oh, okay. Have you ever heard of the Halo Top diet? Uh, have I heard of it? I have, I, for a time, back when I was a younger man, switched completely. Halo Top <laughs> is a brand of ice cream. It's not bad. We're not sponsored by Halo Top. We are not. We could I'm be. Not, I'm, well, I'm not, I'm not giving anybody any advice to eat Halo Top ice cream. Sure. But in 2016, a GQ writer by the name of Shane Snow did this thing where he ate nothing but healthy ice cream. He wrote, he wrote an article for GQ. It's titled, What It's Like to Eat Nothing But This Magical Healthy Ice Cream for 10 Days. So this company, Halo Top, yep. made this ice cream. It was, it was founded by uh, two former lawyers uh, named uh, Justin Wolverton and uh, Doug Bouton. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. And it was, it was, they founded this company in 2012 with the idea that they could make Halo, to, they could make like a pint of ice cream, like a Ben and Jerry size of ice cream, right? low calorie and high protein. And like I said, with the macros, people understand like, oh, high protein generally is good because that means there's less room for carbs or there's less room for fats. And so if you eat a high protein diet, people are like, oh yeah, well, that's going to be automatically healthy. Most of the time it is. I mean, it's generally good to have a lot of protein, but it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not the be all end all. But the point is Halo Top ice cream, their brand. They found a way to cram these flavors like chocolate and candy bar and cookies and ice cream and whatever else into this pint and have a limited number of calories. Like a whole, a whole pint of Ben and Jerry's is like over a thousand calories. And that's generally quite a lot. And almost all of that comes from the cream and sugar that they put into it. Right. Or like whatever candy sprinkles or cookie dough or, or, or whatever other ingredients. But these guys found a way to make that same size, that serving size, into a low-calorie, high-protein, sometimes dairy-free treat. And this GQ guy, Shane Snow, ate nothing but Halo Top for 10 days. And it's like, well, you know, if you look at it, mathematically speaking, the calories tend to add up to what you would expect to have to want in your diet. Yeah. And this, this GQ piece was really interesting. It was somebody who's like, well, I, I started out with a certain percentage of body fat. And, you know, he said... Uh, uh, he, uh, my morning measurements one day after eating it showed 153.5 pounds and 15% body fat. Uh, he, uh, you know, lost a bunch of weight for it. Or, or, that, or no, sorry, that those were his stats at the very beginning. Yeah. And what, what did we end up? Well, we're I'm, I'm scrolling down to the bottom here. It's talking about day ten. He said my stomach felt empty. My body was tired, but inexplicably clean. Perhaps it's the light at the end of the ice cream tunnel, but I felt like I'd turned a corner. I stopped being miserable eating one thing over and over again, and I felt light. He was at his lowest weight in years, 144 pounds. 11 pounds? Yeah, he lost, he, he, well, he, 9 pounds. 9 pounds. Whatever. That's close nine. enough for, for those of us that did, went to state school. That's pretty close math by me. Um, So... Okay, look, yeah, pretty good, pretty good. But the point is that Halo Top did jump on top of this healthy ice cream trend. Like, well, yeah, what, but 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 the problem was, I don't know if it was the problem. The difference is that Halo Top said, "Hey, we are a brand of healthy ice cream." Right. They didn't say ice cream is healthy for you. And here, let us be an example. It's That's we're the point. healthy ice cream. That's and so point, yeah. the Halo Top diet 
is a result of this kind of rise to fame as a result of eating nothing but ice cream for 10 days and having a GQ writer publish about it. So there, there is marketing that exists about this. And to this day, you know, Halo Top is advertised. They have their brightly colored sprinkles and patterns and a little ice cream silhouette in the name brand. And then they have the number of calories in huge font right there in the center of each different brand. Yeah, you, which, the, you, know, you have to look hard to see the flavor of the ice cream. Yes. But the, the number of calories stands out. Someone, someone can pick that up and go, oh, well, shoot, I know what I'm, I know what I'm, I know the size of the check that I'm writing for my body when I buy I have it. spent at least $1,000 on Halo Top over the past five years. Is that, well, you know, you, you're looking better than ever. Uh, <sighs> Looks good on you, though. Thank you. Um, it is a good replacement for the ritual of eating ice cream. For the, the calorie thing of ice cream, it's so rich and so thick. A pint of Ben & Jerry's is often, and we're picking on Ben & Jerry's, 10 or 1,000 to 1,200. Like, that's a lot. So the Halo Top's like, this, a lot is, of calories. this is some protein powder and some other shit that we found in science and labs, and it makes it seem like ice cream, but... Basically, it's not, but it's cold, frozen, semi-milky protein powder. So just eat this. This will work. And you're like, yeah. And I do think it's that is absolutely a thing. It's not part of a, a healthy, balanced diet, in my opinion. It I, when I'm eating it, I'm like, this is fake. This is not food, but um, it's also not bad for me. I guess I will say that you won't lose weight on Halo Top if you replace your ice cream habit with Halo Top. Um, if you replace like actual food with Halo Top, it sounds like you will lose weight and that just has to do with calories. So if, if ice cream has been healthy the whole time and people don't want to market it, then that means that conventional wisdom has become so strong that sugar is bad for you. And this is a sweet treat when people are raising children. Or we think of our sweet mother, Loretta, who is the most wives tale wives tailer that has ever told a wives tale. She just loves... <laughs> Don't sit close to the TV, all of that kind of thing. I want to talk about conventional wisdom. This is Wikipedia's definition. Okay. Conventional wisdom or received opinion is the body of ideas or explanations generally accepted by the public and or experts in a field. This is fun for you. In religion, this is called orthodoxy. It's just what people know to be true. Yes. That's... I, I, I've been reading a book about the last 500 years recently this really interesting history it's called uh, from dawn to decadence by uh, mm. jacques barzun oh Jacques, this, uh, this french historian and there's there's an argument to be made there and you know c.s lewis has made this argument you know, hundreds of other people have made this argument that there's such a close tie between in in this time period from the 16th century really onward between magic and science mm-hmm. and that offends the modern sensibilities, I and mean, people today are like, "Wow, you know, magic is blah blah blah." It's, and you know, rightly so. You know, there aren't arcane casters walking around placing spells on people and, and doing whatever else. But the idea that people could know the entire truth of a thing, or the idea that people could understand the material universe that we live in to such an extent that they're able to transmute lead into gold—that idea coupled with the idea of observation and evidence-based experiment and the, the accumulation of knowledge through those kinds of observations of the natural world, those ideas go hand in hand. They're, or they're, 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 two, they're two trunks that split off from each other some time ago, but they're rooted in the same, in the same place in, in human history. And it's super, super interesting to me that you know, like what we would consider just silliness and, and myth and you know, just utterly fake today 
is really, I mean, a much closer relative to the modern scientific method than people would like to believe. And it's it's this conventional wisdom, or like in, in religion, this is known as orthodoxy. Well, the people who are religious are looking for the truth, too. Right. People who are scientific are looking for the truth, but it just it just looks different. It, lo- it, it feels different to the modern mind. And so it's, it's really kind of arrogant to say, like, well, we know so much more now. And in, in a way, we do. But also, people weren't, it wasn't like people were stupid or yeah. misinformed or, or when the, I think the first usage of this term dates back to 1838 before this, this guy named Kenneth Galbraith wrote it, wrote about it in uh, in a book in 1958. He, he described the affluent society. He said, it'll be convenient to have a name for the ideas which were esteemed at any time for their acceptability. And it should be a term that emphasizes this predictability. I shall refer to these ideas henceforth as the conventional wisdom. I mean, that's just, crystallizing into an easily handleable term the notion that people can learn things and generally speaking people are just as everybody else is just as smart as we are people you know people are just as smart as each other so they're able to kind of handle in their mind the ideas that of like what's what are the latest scientific discoveries or, or or at the very least they're able to intuit them if not wield them you know in the way that like a stephen hawking or like an albert einstein could but the fact is that they're rooted in the same kind of quest for knowledge, this like encyclopedic desire to understand the world. And I, I just think that's so, so fascinating. And, you know, it comes back to bite us in, in cases like this where we think, oh, well, we know everything now. We know so much more now than we did. And, but then we're plagued with questions like, well, why the hell does ice cream seem healthy when it's been conventional wisdom for years that that's not the case? Yeah, I think that, first of all, Alchemy's relationship with science. I think the I would shock a lot of people who are pro science and anti religion or anti like superstition. It would shock them to know just how many of these people were incredibly religious and were also actively in their spare time trying to create gold from dirt and stuff like this. Was you're 100 percent right? People like this. This relationship between the unknown and the known. On one hand, is a scientific method. On the other hand, they tried a lot of shit that we would see as witchcraft that just didn't work, and they thought that maybe it would. Or yeah, for sure. Which yeah, is it's not, it's not that these attempts were misguided. It's no, that they were yeah. people who were trying to figure out yep. how to understand the the natural world around them. I mean, the, the the depth of detail that people went into on their experiments with like electricity in the eighteenth century just shocking. I mean, it's it's like people don't talk about Ben Franklin as they, they oh yeah he's the father of electricity and he did something with a key in a thunderstorm or whatever. No, he did a ton of scientific experimenting. And it's not that he was like trying to figure out how to divine riches from the soil. And, and you know, there and th- this is also coupled with the fact that like, there are charlatans out there who are like, well, yes, I can find water using these divining rods. And like, it's obviously false. But the, the point is that the desire for knowledge and truth, this, this conventional, what we would call conventional wisdom today, I mean, that's rooted in the same thing that scientific exploration is today. And that's why I think it's, it's important to have like a good, healthy dose of humility when it comes to understanding scientific knowledge. To like, to like boldly proclaim something is, that seems as obvious as, well, ice cream is very unhealthy for you, only to find later that it turns out that that might not actually be the case. That, that might be an open question. It, it it's Mark Twain was absolutely right. It comes back to it again. It ain't what you don't know that hurts you. It's what you know for certain that just ain't so. And humility is the best antidote to that. It's really interesting to me. I think as a history nerd, what studying history f- for the period of I'll say 2008 and onward is going to be because we have so much 
so much of history is just like, what was it like to be an average everyday Roman? And what were the senators doing on a Tuesday afternoon? Like, well, in the next 200 years, like you're going to know anything you want to like science is just going to be, or history is going to be like science. You're going to look it up and then you can create your studies based on an enormous, incomprehensibly huge database of what everybody was doing all of the time, which is kind of scary and annoying, but also really kind of fascinating to me because for example, in 2008, the financial crisis, part of the big short and where Mark Twain quote was, was used and what a great movie. It was the best movie by Adam, whatever his name, Adam McKay, I think his name is. Um, <laughs> I saw a really funny tweet this weekend. Okay. It was like, it was, uh, oh, it, it was, it, it was about an Adam McKay movie. I, I, I can't remember what it was about, but it was just like, Describing this, he's like, "Oh yeah, here's Dua Lipa doing squats, <laughs> explaining." <laughs> like, I don't, I don't know if it was about COVID or, but yeah, he yeah. made some good, very entertaining movies that, uh, well, they play it a little fast and loose with the actual facts because sure. we don't want those to get in the way of a good story. Right, and same thing with um, our boy, who wrote the books, Michael Lewis. But in 2008, conventional wisdom played a huge role for the average everyday American for the financial crisis because the conventional wisdom on Main Street and on Wall Street for the average, the schmuck who's just throwing their money into a fund, they, the conventional wisdom, the housing is not going to go down because housing has never gone down. It went down a little bit in the 80s, but really the value of your home goes up. That's where everyone is buying into this idea of like, duh, housing doesn't go down, but then it did. It did. It, it went did down. In and a then that's, huge, huge way. And as a result of that, almost... You know, we were almost thrown back into literal dark ages as a species. So it it it, it happened right in front of our eyes. So now, as we're going through this, what my favorite economist on TikTok calls a vibe session. It's not an actual recession, but that vibes are bad. <laughs> so people are like, it's a recession, but she's like, it's not. It's a vibe session, which I love that term. Great for her going viral. She's been on TV as a result of this, which is really cool. But have I have, have I have I talked about this the the thing on red versus blue before? No. Shout out to Red vs. Blue, their web series by, by Rooster Teeth. They started like years ago. Remember we little kids? Yeah, I remember like Red vs. Blue, 100%. Yeah, yeah, incredible stuff. There's this, there's this bit that those guys do. It's not Red vs. Blue. It's the people who make Red vs. Blue. And, and one of the one of the live action kind of mini series that they do is just them in the office kind of living their lives. There's this one where the founder is talking to one of the other guys who like co-founded it. or I, I don't know what the exact relationship is, but... First guy says to the other, well, we got we to gotta let some people go. We got to cut some people back. And the second guy says, well, oh, no. My God, that's terrible. Are we in trouble? First guy says, well, no. And the second guy goes, well, if we're not in trouble, why do we need to cut people back? And first guy says, well, because the economy is bad. <laughs> like, well, it's just, it seems like now's the right time to do this. So, like, that's what you do when the economy is bad. I mean, that, that's what you do when you're in a recession. The the economy is bad, right? We got to cut. And it turns it's it's just like it's not. It's yeah. but the vibes are off. The vibes are off. There are some housing market. There's some weirdness going on for sure. There's a war and like there people, there's inflation is think happening. The economy is way worse than it is. Too. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like the inflation thing is is bad, um, which we knew. But but unemployment is at like nearly a fifty year low. Unemployment people losing their like, jobs hasn't been are, this low since the friggin'. Ford administration. The and people losing their jobs who we would call careers and not just like hourly jobs, people losing those jobs are finding them pretty quickly, which is really weird and intense too. So that yeah, there's a vibe session. I want to shift gears about like well, my original point was that 
I wonder if when we look at the vibe session, the vibe session is a result of the recession where everyone's like, okay, everything someone with a, that's wealthy with a suit is telling me on TV is a lie. Let's just assume they're all lying constantly, which I think is healthy to a point, but also then we're just like, we're all spooked. Okay, let's talk about the education part of this because there is a conventional wisdom that bore out of misinterpretations of data, which that happens all of the time. This is not a vaccine situation where someone fabricated bullshit and as a result led to the deaths of perhaps millions of people over the next 50 yeah, years. That is, that is horse hockey. Yeah, for sure. This study from the 70s, um, and I'm reading this from Education Next, wrote an article about this. If you've ever heard of learning styles, like, I learn best as a visual learner. No, you don't. And apparently, learning styles are not a thing. Some information is retained better when it is presented in different ways. And most teachers to this day believe that students learn best in their preferred learning style. However, learning styles scientifically are not a thing. Yeah, there, it just it's it's not true. I mean, I, I think it could be true. It has not this, been proven. There's no learning. Well, it's, styles. It, I think that that term was coined like decades ago. Yes. And that this has been kind of found to be untrue as early as like 2004. Yes. And it's, it's, it's not good, but people think like, Oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a kinesthetic learner. Like, well, yeah, everybody learns by doing mm -hmm. like, I'm a visual learner. Like, well, yeah, when, when information is presented really well, visually, everybody learns well, visually, I'm an auditory learner. I need to hear it. Like, well, yeah, when everybody, when everybody talks about something, they learn about it. It's, it's, it's not an, and, and you know, I, I, that's another thing that's like vibes based. Like, I think, I think people sometimes underestimate how similar everybody is to everybody else. Like to, and to think that there's like four different learning styles or three different learning styles that everybody falls into. It's like the Zodiac for people who like psychology. Yes. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's just not true. And it turns out that it could actually be detrimental yes, to for sure. like students actually learning about this. So the yep. APA wrote about this in 2019. They, they wrote an article and it's titled Belief in Learning Styles Myth May Be Detrimental. And they described this, the, these online experiments. So in, in two online experiments with 668 participants, over 90% of them believed people learn better if those people are taught in their predominant learning style. And you know, the, the, the three categories that they use here are the ones that we've already said, visual, auditory, or tactile. Right. Like tactile, kinesthetic, it's like yeah, if you handle touching, something. Yeah. But those who believed in learning styles split evenly into this kind of essentialist group that held the beliefs of strong strongly and this non-essentialist group that realized well you know maybe this is true maybe it's not but like oh yeah i feel like i've read somewhere once about the about the learning styles but that's just not really the case i mean it's it's not true and in responses to survey questions the the group of who, who are like essential believers they were more likely to state that learning styles are like in based on heritage like uh genetics what's yeah. the genetic yeah it's it, it's inheritable like they're they're instantiated in the brain. They believe they don't change over time, and they mark. They believe that those learning styles distinguish certain types of people. Like, oh well, he's an auditory learner, so you got to you got to talk to him about it. Left brain, right brain. <laughs> yeah, and that and that's it's just not true. Yeah, it's it's factually incorrect. It does make a lot of sense that people need to learn in different styles for different reasons at different times. But people having a learning style as like a genetic personality trait, I think is, is is putting the cart before the horse and misinterpreting data and taking... This is what happens when you you read the New York Times article and not the scientific studies that you can get whatever conclusion that the, the writer got at the time, which is, I think, probably how this happened. And then it only takes two or three generations of people going to school on how to teach people for this to get ingrained and then it's done. Like, now we have to break the mold. 
And it also turns out to cost a lot of resources too. I mean, teachers spend time and money trying to make sure that their students' needs are tailored to. So they try to craft a lesson in a way that's going to appeal to auditory learners. And then they try to do another one that's going to appeal to kinesthetic learners. And that's a waste of time. Students are likely to, like if you, you take a little survey that says like, oh, I'm this type of learner. So students are going to try to study in a way that maximizes the use of their their skill in that particular way. And mm-hmm. it, it that that's actually detrimental. I mean, it may or may not help them succeed. And it might just be a distraction from their their ability to learn. They, they might be underselling other techniques of study and learning that could help them better retain knowledge or better, more deeply understand a topic. And so... The, the, the use of this kind of conventional wisdom that's based on something that's not really scientifically shown to be true. I mean, it's, it, it's, just not, it's just not real. This could be a real serious problem for people. I mean, we, we talked about the low stakes of, of the ice cream diet. You know, yeah. you, so what? Maybe Ben and Jerry's, despite their ridiculous political statements on Twitter for no reason that nobody asked for, they might make a little bit more money because people realize ice cream is good for you. You know, that, that, that's really the end of the story. But in cases like education, the, f- the future of civilization depends on it. Without an educated society, democracy well, it's, I mean, isn't, isn't going to persist. So It's just a bummer I'm that they're pigeonholing children... And like it's well intentioned is the biggest bummer. Like you just it is, pigeon- yeah. yeah. I mean, like, but I guess I do think learning styles as a thing that is not scientifically defined makes a ton of sense to me. Like, yeah, touch things, hear things, see things, do all of it. Of course, you got to read, you got to write, you got to do all this different stuff. But pigeonholing someone like, oh well, they can understand the Great Gatsby better because I read it to them out loud. Like, it doesn't really matter how they ingested the information. They need to ingest the information the way they need to ingest the information. You need to not pigeonhole a child into only being able to comprehend information in one way is my thing because we know that yeah, that's that, scientifically not how it works it, it, exactly in, in this apa article uh, shailene uh, nanskivel nanskivel i'm sorry if i'm mispronouncing that shailene is shailene. a phd and a visiting scholar at the university of michigan and she captures the exact concern she says my biggest concern is that time is being spent teaching young children maladaptive strategies for learning yeah. So it's, it's important that children from a very young age are taught with the best practices so that they're going to succeed. Up 80 to 95% of people, according to the APA article, believe in this learning styles thing. And it could cause some real significant problems because students like might not develop the skills necessary to like learn and study in a way that's going to help them actually retain information. And I'm not saying that they're, they're, they're picking the wrong style. Like auditory learners actually need to do more kinesthetic learning. Like, no, I'm saying that there are ways to study that might be more helpful for children that they're not learning because like, well, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a visual learner. So I don't like to look at the charts. I don't like to read the material. I'd like to hear someone explain it to me. It's like, well, yeah, but you got to read sometimes too. It's really interesting because I know for myself, I am very specifically all of them, um, like the rest of us. We all are. (laughs) Yeah. So like, for for example, if I were given instructions for a task, I would very much like to have those instructions written out so I could reference them at any point in time if it's a task that I feel like I already have the faculties to complete. If it's a physical task, I want to watch someone do it. I don't even want to hear them talk. If if you're going to back out of the driveway, if I'm learning to drive, I'm just going to watch you do it. And then I will do it. But if you're telling me to, uh, like when I, at my job, I don't want an, an assignment 
or something's told to me at a meeting and I don't want it like visually demonstrated to me, write it down so that I can reference the instructions at any point in time, which are two, those fly in the face of each other. So if you wrote down the instructions on how to back a car out of a driveway, I would not love that. Just do it one time and I'll, I'll replicate it. But if I have to write an article or whatever, it's like, tell me what you want in the article in this list and I will make that happen. There's a time and a place. There is a time I mean, and a place. There, there really is a time and a place for different types of try to communicate and learn. My, I think our Cro-Magnon ancestors would be very proud. I'm very monkey see, monkey do. Um, yes. Be all over you. Speaking of that, it is back to school time for many of our listeners and whatnot. And we thank you for uh, listening to Game Theory. And we would like all of you to tell your professors to listen to our show because we're going to try to have a couple of them on at one point in time. We're wrong about a lot. Player three, tell your professors how wrong we are. <laughs> Tell yeah. them to listen to all the episodes and write to us about how wrong we are. Talk to people about it. We want to be corrected. We're and if you're not in school, um, we are going to try to have your prof- a couple of professors on about a couple of things. Some actual game theory professors. I think that's going to happen if they're not Fingers too crossed. busy. Yeah, we never know. All right. Maybe you'll learn something. Maybe. Yeah. you got to see it first. 